The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. Brought to you by EBS. Let our dedication, focus and expertise help you on your mortgage journey. EBS DAC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. This is News Talk. You're very welcome along to the first episode of The Home Show with me, Sinead Ryan. This is News Talk's brand new podcast. We'll be looking closely at all aspects of the home, from design and architecture, restoration and home improvement, to buying, selling, renting, property law and even planning. There's lots to come in the first episode and we have top experts to help us along. You can contact us by emailing thehomeshow at newstalk.com and you can find me on Twitter at Sinead underscore Ryan. And just to say thank you to everybody who has been sending good wishes, I'm delighted to be joining the exciting new range of programmes on News Talk. To start this week, we're joined by architect, designer and artist Roisin Murphy. Roisin, it's great to have you along. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Sinead. Uh, Now, you've been working in the area of architecture and home design for a long time. Is there anything distinctive about the Irish home or how we live compared to other countries? We do love the three-bed semi with the front and back garden. Isn't that true? I think we are a nation obsessed with housing. It's so integrated into our whole being that even when I was listening to somebody debate the whole issue of land ownership and house ownership and there's a lot of debate about it around homelessness at the moment and for me all the models when you pick them out in terms of Copenhagen or Berlin and we're going to solve it by being like Berlin they all relinquish on the ownership of the house but in Ireland Is that cultural do you think? It's To our bones It's to our bones the idea that you own your home so I don't know how we are going to kind of come to terms with that in Ireland that one day there might be idea that you don't own the house you rent it Right. And I mean, you know, it really is not going to be helped by the fact that it seems to me that sometimes government policy is at odds with that emotional mindset that we have about housing. Absolutely. Do you think we're ever going to become this kind of European rental model? (laughs) I think the only thing that is going to possibly push us in that direction is better apartments better apartment design, better services in the city, but also as we become, we're Europeans. I think Irish people have embraced Europe hugely and there's been a cultural sea shift with that. You can see it in our shops and everything. That would be the one thing that could catalyst for us to live in a more kind of more European way. Other than that, I think we will stay in the semi-D for the rest of our lives. Yeah, because I mean, you have to factor in the Irish mammy here. You know, (laughs) mammies don't like their kids buying apartments or renting in apartments. They want to see them settled. And doesn't that mean... That is it. Buy a house at all costs. Settle is a huge word word (laughs) in Ireland, I think. But I think we have to change because if you're going to live in the city and if you're going to live in a proper city life, you're going to have to have more dense apartment living and with that we probably will have bigger apartments and they'll have bigger balconies and you know outdoor spaces with them and once we sort that I think the Irish mammy will relinquish and come up for the Sunday lunch Oh you have more faith in that than I do (laughs) Uh, So for the season that's in it now we're transitioning into the spring the big focus is on decluttering and storage and now we've always had you know spring clean where we carpets were beaten and sheets were turned and all that do you think Mary Kondo has had her moment now or is this something that's set to last? We've got very minimalist about chucking out our stuff. There's been a surge in donations to secondhand shops. There has. The Mary Kondo took a grip. Now, I'm fond of a spring clean. Believe me, I think if you are going to espouse minimalist living, there's no way you're not going to be looking at decluttering a house. And I don't know a single designer who starts off with a messy palette. They all want everything gone first. So I think it's stuck in now with us. I don't think it's going to change. And I think if you look at anything that's trending on Instagram, or it's all cleaning. It's okay. the big new interiors. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> worryingly. Clean, cleaning is the new sex yeah. or the new black or whatever. OK. Uh, we put a call out during the week. OK, so we've lots of questions that come in for you on interior design right. and space and uh, an awful lot on flooring and what people like to call flow. So let's start with some of that. I'm going to kick off with Louise. Louise uh, said she's wondering if laminate floors or hardwood floors are a better op- option. She said it's a busy family sitting room. She's two children under 10, all their toys, a dog and a husband, all in and out of the room. She's not overly worried about the cost, but she wants something that's really durable. What do you recommend for her? Definitely a hardwood floor over a laminate floor. They just, for in terms of what you're going to be doing in 10 years time, you can sand them back, you can refinish them, you can put them in different stain. But a laminate floor has a certain, it's a limited lifespan. So I would always go 
hardwood floor. Now, do you mean that semi-solid? Semi-solid. Floor, if, if you can do the full plank, do the full plank. <laughs> Don't be doing your box plank. Sound like um, my Pilates teacher. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I just think there's nothing on it because I actually tested this, God bless, on my own parents' home and I went laminate in one section and went hardwood on the other and you can see the ageing is slightly different. And for sustainable use, and I know it's a little bit more expensive, but it's definitely a much nicer finish. Okay. Good advice there for Louise. Louise, go with the hardwood flooring. Uh, Charlotte. Charlotte lives in a rental apartment. She said it's a little bit soulless. The walls are very light grey and there are laminate floors throughout. It's very clean and sleek, but boring. She's not allowed to hang pictures on the wall and she wants to know how can she inject a little bit of life into it on a budget. Well, the big new trend is perfect for this, which is the hygge. With yeah, ba- who is the Danish the kind Danish, of Scandinavian yeah, the Danish house hug but it is <laughs> plants you know there's a huge trend for plants inside for even if you own your own apartment if you own your own house bringing kind of the outdoors what, indoors yeah and what you would have seen in the 70s which is like spider plants banana leaf plants Swiss cottage plants these very kind of frondy plants and that does bring life immediately. And the other thing I would say is don't be afraid of posters. The old fashioned classic 1970s. Now they've got much more sophisticated. You can kind of print up all the huge posters necessarily and get them mounted onto a canvas. And I, by a canvas, I mean a board. So you can kind of install any artwork you like into your own home at a much smaller cost of, say, a painting. And then you bring it with you. It doesn't need to damage. You can rest on the floor and lean back. I've seen that in some houses, actually. You go in and you see these giant mirrors and they're not hung up at all. No, they're just they're leaning just, against yes. the wall and it looks as if somebody's just forgotten to put them yeah. up. But is that a, is that a, a trend? trend? Yeah. Oh, well done, Sinead. <laughs> that is a trend. It's right. not a very good trend if you have little people, though. So I think for me, that was my biggest heartbreak moment. The big mirror went over the mantelpiece. Oh, right. But it is a trend and it does add a bit of... Actually, what you've just said about the mirror with plants in front of it is beautiful as well. And then throws... A fur throw rather than just a coloured throw is another way of bringing a lot of kind of texture and life into things that are removable. Is there a kind of a colour that's in at the moment for spring for this time of year? Oh, the colour is the huge debate this year because grey is gone. That's all you hear is grey is gone. Oh dear Charlotte, grey is gone. You're going to have to get get rid of that. (laughs) All right, okay. Right, Alice has been on. She also loves the minimalistic look, but she has a two-year-old son, which makes it a bit trickier. Any suggestions on how she could achieve that look without tearing her hair out and screaming at her child every five minutes? Well, Alice, my advice would be to wait a couple of decades, but maybe (laughs) Roisin has a different (laughs) plan. I'm thinking that. (laughs) I wasn't going to say it, but I'm exactly thinking that. It's so hard. It is the hardest thing you know apart from a dog a big wet lab is probably more difficult for interiors kids come with kit don't kids they kids they got a lot take of up gear, a lot of room a lot of gear I remember at one point we, I had a tent in my living room and then I had a full climbing frame in the living room I gave up I have now got and I know actually Dermot Bannon has this as well he's got a full set of gym bars from the daughter from gymnastics it is just kids take over your life so go with it like just Try and think a little bit out of the box, I would say, like look at it as an opportunity to have less rules around design, maybe even think about having a swing in your living room, (gasps) really odd things. And then again, baskets, you know, they are super on trend at the moment. And I would say put all the Lego in the baskets, which is probably the biggest thing is the way kids toys just explode into a room. Suddenly mm, you've got to explode into- onto the floor and under the hoover. But <laughs> so those baskets, so you're talking about maybe you can go over and get those open bookcases very reasonably from IKEA or places yep. like that and just put in those wicker baskets yes. with everything yeah. in it. Okay. And I okay. for me that was the way to solve it. And if you have even you'll notice there's small kids' tables now around where literally the Lego will go down into the middle of the table and you close over the lid. So work with it. Think, okay, I can't teach the kids and I don't care what Marie Kondo says. My <laughs> child looks at me when I ask them to kind of make their bed and it's just a duvet. Is that kind of, are you nuts? Yeah. So I think you just have to design around it and it's fun. And play the tidying up game before we all go to bed. Okay. <laughs> Good luck with that, Alice. <laughs> <laughs> There's one last thing I did learn from a Californian woman that what she did was she would play a song at the very end of the day and they had five minutes of tidy dancing and it was like literally a song went on and they all went nuts for five minutes tidying but the whole family including dad and apparently she said that was one of the the best tricks she had. Oh that's a bit Barney the dinosaur for me. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think I'd um, I, I, I don't think I'm that good a mother actually <laughs> My husband just refused He just was, I'm Sounds not doing like that Sounds too much fun Get them out of the room and clear up <laughs> Right okay Simon has a question now So this is a perennial one you know a little bit of money to spend maybe he's taken out a loan uh, Loft or kitchen So you've 25,000 Roisin mm. Where are you going to spend it? Depends I really think it depends on I think it depends on the age of your family I really do I think sometimes if you're spending a lot of time in the kitchen um, you know invested there at the very beginning because that's where I think everybody is for the first 15 years of a marriage or a family mm. um, it's the most expensive place to put money though so if you have if you want bang for your book and there's more people in your house who all want their own room the attic is the cheapest uh, form of extending your home okay, so the attic is, is good value Okay, and and there's a thing about you know, so you've to all these height restrictions and all that. Yeah. Does that actually matter if you're only putting a den up there, or a playroom, or a kids' room? It's just you can't you, you can't, can't say it's a four bedroomed home if it's not. Well, you can't sleep in it. Okay. Because of fire rags, so it is fairly strict, and you can't sell it on as a you know an extra bedroom. an extra bedroom. Um, but so, so does that mean does that then depend on the pitch of the roof what you're going to do with depends that space depends on the ceiling height so mm-hmm. you have to have I think at least two thirds of the ceiling height has to be over two metres for it to be called a bedroom so but you know a loft a den there's lots of different ways to use the space Okay. but think about where you want to spend your money I mean you know a kitchen knocking down a living room wall will cost around 25,000 euros kind of modestly right so there's your money gone right there's your away. money gone right away <laughs> whereas a loft will co- a loft you know in an older house could cost you 30 oh I see okay so so maybe get advice and get somebody yes. in to look at both yeah. okay um, Martin has been on as well Martin says there is anecdotally evidence that you can't get a builder to do a job for less than 100,000 now I think he just means they're not bothered to do it they're so hard few and far between what hope for someone who just wants to do a simple job like converting the attic? It is difficult. You'll be waiting, won't you? It is very difficult. It is. He has hit the nail on the head and nobody wants to go into construction anymore. It's considered a boring job. It's a difficult job. So we're, we're having a difficulty in the construction sector even getting people to sign up on apprenticeships. Do you think that the government could be doing more in this regard because apprenticeships have kind of got a bad name um, and people feel, oh, I need a four-year degree to do anything at the moment. Is there more that could be done to encourage people back into this industry? I think they have to help uh, the small builder and they have to help the people who need to provide the apprentices with their jobs because often they're taken out of the job to go to college. So there's one of those things where they're just isn't enough joint up thinking. There isn't enough incentive for the small business to have his apprentice there. It's difficult. And then they, they go off maybe and do an engineering course because it's just less, unco- you know, it's, 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 it's easier. It's an easier life. So definitely the government need to put their hats on and work a little bit harder to help small businesses do this. Right, Tim has been on. He's a hall in a kitchen uh, that has always had lino flooring. He wants wood uh, to go down instead and his wife wants tile we both want something that we're still happy with in five to ten years. Help me win the argument. Well, I can do that very quickly, Tim. <laughs> Give in. Give in. That's but it. I know. Well, what's the expert advice? My expert, or tile? my expert advice is draw a line down the middle. One has, say, wood in the hall is always lovely and um, a nice soft entrance welcoming and a good old hard tile in the kitchen. You won't go wrong. Okay, so if you're doing that transition then, because I know some people like the idea of their eye kind of flowing all the way down from the front of the house to the back of the house. And it's nice for that flooring to kind of guide you. How do you break that up more easily? Would you just have tile around where the plumbing bits are or... Is it okay to make that, that transition all the way through? It is okay to make the transition all the way through, but wood is definitely more difficult to work in a kitchen. I would also say there's this thing, I'm not a big fan, but I will volunteer the information. It's another possible solution to your marriage difficulty is there's an, a thing called a wood tile, which is a tile that looks like wood or cork. Cork is the ultimate solution. So maybe a different material altogether. Well, that's the home show on News Talk solving all your psychological and therapy problems as well as the ones of the home. Uh, Rachel has a different issue. She's a couple in her late 50s. They're moving out of the family home of 20 years and into a two-bedroomed apartment. They have kids moved out, but grandchildren coming back and they've lots of stuff. Uh, They want to keep some elements from their old life as they transition into their new one. Downsizing is is the big hot topic of the moment isn't it Roisin like you know houses and apartments are finally beginning to be built for this 
very lucrative market who are often cash buyers. Absolutely. How do you manage that transition? Because it's not just a house sale. It's, it's no. an, an emotional move, isn't it? It's an emotional move and, and they're lucky. They obviously found a place they want to go to because an awful lot of people don't want to move out of their neighbourhoods when they're being encouraged to downsize. So again, you know, point to government, mixed use in village areas. But I think that take what you regard as the best pieces and then treat them like fireplaces. Treat them like period features in your new home. Like a dresser or Absolutely. a table yep. or something like that. Yep. But but what if the apartment you're moving to is ultra modern and new and this is an item from the 1950s? You're on trend. You really? are the person with your mid-century vintage. It is the look at the moment. Okay, fabulous. Okay, mid-century vintage. There you go, Rachel. Now, Kira has an interior design question. She said she recently painted the walls in her apartment a lovely pale grey colour. Oh dear, I think we found out that's not on trend. Uh, it's really fresh and clean looking, but she thinks the walls need some paintings or artworks. Uh, and she wants to know where would she get decent arty prints. She's looking for a Scandinavian vibe, wants to avoid Ikea because she thinks everybody has those. Well, she's kind of right as well and I love Ikea but she is right. It's no place for art. It's it's really good for a map of the world though. I'm a big fan of that. I love their huge maps that it's they do. It's great, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 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 Although there was some um, comment in the media that they had they had missed out a bit of New Zealand or something <laughs> on the map and people were giving out about that. Okay, so Scandi prints. Scandi prints. Where did you get that? There are, we do prints in Ireland. We do them really, really well. There are millions of really good print small print house like the Graphic or the Black Church Print Studio or the Stony Press. There's a lot of good prints and they are they are far more accessible price-wise. And what size would they be now? Because you need high resolution. You don't want to be blowing up your own photographs. You oh know, no, I don't mean those. I mean art prints. Okay. I mean the ones proper etchings. Pro- and, okay. Proper proper art art prints that you would get for say even Mazer has a few out at the moment where there's enough. We have a very good art scene that is providing affordable art to people. So invest in it. It's a nice entry point for art investment as well. A good print. And they they come in big sizes, some of them. Some of them will be um, the size of a little tree. So you can, you know, you really and you and it's very scandy. It's a it's a really nice look because you can get kind of a thing called uh, like a blue ink that is pushed into the grain of the paper. So you're seeing the texture of the paper. It's exactly what you know, for if you look for a Scandi thing, it's lovely. And budget-wise, what are you looking at there? I think you can start at six hundred or two hundred. Like they vary in cost according to the size, but they the, they have an authenticity because if you're touching on Scandi vibe, you're touching on authenticity. Okay. Brian has a far more prosaic issue. He's bought an older house built in the 1970s. He finds it very chilly, but the boiler is new, so he doesn't need to do anything there. But he's wondering about insulation, attic, windows. He's looking for some help. Get it all, all of it, as much of it as you can. I was not a big uh, fan of this. And we moved into a period house and my husband, while I went out one day, maybe down the country on a job, had all the windows replaced with thermally broken, insulated, you know, uh, hardwood windows. And there was was the marriage breakup theory. (laughs) Didn't happen, but by God, was he right. It's he, expensive. He, it's though. expensive. It's the best investment you'll ever make. Now we were, my friends were chucking money um, out for heating. Uh, we we were we we spent hardly anything. It is really really a, an incredibly good investment in your home. There are grants available yes. to help, isn't that right? Yeah, the SEI grant, and you can retrofit. Um, you can actually clad from the outside. There's just you know where you. You can insulate the outside of your home now as well. There are lots of new technologies out there, but it is a super thing to do to your home. Who do you contact now about if something like that, if you're thinking of going ahead? The uh, SEI. SEAI. Yeah. OK. SEAI. Sorry. Great. OK, super. Um, because I know that, that they are, they have money to give, yep. don't they? Money and grants. And you save money. In the end of the day, you save money. Okay, maybe in a in a few years you'll have saved it. It was fairly immediate for us, actually. And, you know, you really we did open plan and everything as as he was putting in the windows, I was knocking down the walls. But we've a toasty house. Right. And your marriage survived. Excellent. Win win. (laughs) Orla Orla says she needs more space. Uh, Who who doesn't, Orla? She wants to knock uh, through the wall, open up the living room and kitchen together and adding the kitchen island. Uh, her other half wants to add a bit onto the front of the house because he says that would be better. Where are we at on kitchen islands? Does everybody have one now? I don't. I had one 
I had an isthmus, which was an island attached to the wall. It's a special thing a for <laughs> isthmus. It's what we called it in our house. I loved it when I was at a certain certain stage with the kids. It meant that you know they could help you cook. It, you know, it just cut down labour in your home. It's a really good solution if you have a small house for you know increasing counter length um, and storage. Abs- and storage, spot on. There's your baskets back again baskets, now in underneath. Yeah, it's super, but. If you're going to attempt to go to the front of your house, it's planning permission. So I would say remodel inside. Look at the very end of the list for putting something on the front of your house. OK, yeah, because, I mean, you, you have to then get involved in that whole process, get in an engineer and a surveyor and an architect yeah. and talk to the neighbours and go and the, through You're at the planning that risk process. as well, unless it's done incredibly, incredibly tastefully of being the house that has the portico on the front. Oh, so you're singled out, but not in a good way? Yeah. So you have to be okay. really careful what you do in the front of a house. OK. Jane is looking at remodelling her main living space, which she calls a standard Irish sitting room. She finds it hard to get her sense of style or taste. Doesn't really know what she's looking for. She wonders, how would an interior designer help her? What would they do? What would you do? What I would do is I would have a good look at her and her clothing and I would encourage her to sort of uh, put a little lookbook together. Her clothing? Yeah, I think I think women in terms of their clothing you can get a lot of inspiration for themselves okay. and even how they garden and where they like to go on holidays. And I would get her to think think outside of the interior design like outside of that brief oh I have to get a couch and the curtains and, and think about where am I where am I most alive in terms of mm. how of, of the look of something Recreate a beach in Bali or something like that Well why not I mean it gets very grey here in the winter It's mm. I just think there's some I know one woman who said to me I just want to feel like I'm on holidays so okay, we right. painted her back garden and you know that azure blue yes, so yes, every time she comes lovely. home from work it's she's in Greece Oh I want that already. Lisa, go for that. Uh, Brian Brian uh, uh, has moved into a new apartment and he can hear the footsteps of the people next door and up above. What are his options? Uh, get new neighbours. Uh, Brian, I'd be saying to you, the regulations are supposed to not stop all that. Absolutely, Sinead. So like what's this? Badly built apartments? Badly built apartments. I would contact my landlord and suggest that we, you know, how was it built? Because it, it's supposed to meet regs. It's supposed to have a quilted uh, underlay. And even if it's an existing building, they're supposed to be, at least they're supposed to apply for a waiver. So contact your landlord, see what went on there. OK, all right. OK, uh, now we'll leave the questions there for the moment. If you want to ask a question on home design or interiors, then send us an email to the home show at newstalk.com. Now, before you go, Roisin, we asked you to bring in uh, something which to use the current parlance, sparks joy for you. Uh, what is your object of desire for our first show? I like that. No sparking joy, Sinead, first of all. <laughs> we, do, we don't use the joy word with this because this is, this is both joyful and laborious. This is paint. But um, I suppose I was hot on the heels of this when I heard that the Faro and Ball Company were going to bring out new colours. Posh paint. Posh paint, the paint that, you know, if Farron, is that a Farron ball? It's a Farron ball. That sort of hushed tone, Rolls Royce of paint. And it is, like, it's not only posh, it's, <laughs> it's expensive. expensive. It's really expensive. And everybody goes, it's the same colour, it's not the same price. You know, it's not, the, it's, it doesn't cost the same, but it looks like it. And, so but is it, look, honest to goodness, isn't paint paint? Okay, I kind of go with you on this. Right. I think that Farron Ball was a response to everybody wanting to look like they had a historic property. I think that that was where the love of Farron Ball, you know, it was like a little bit of, of Georgian bliss in your own home and hence the love of it. And we w- really went for it. It wasn't but, just to be able to say to people, by the way, that's Farron no. Ball on the wall. Uh, well, they do. Ha- <laughs> I, I I would love to say that it's just all money, but their paints are extremely well made. OK, well, and, well, well, I'm sure they are, but they have silly names. Uh, <laughs> Treron, um, which kind of looks slightly brown. Jitney, uh, Payen... Black sulking room, room pink. pink. Oh, now, Roisin, tell us about <laughs> sulking room. I, I want a sulking room. Right. But this is also very like the Pantone colour of the year as well. I thought that sulking room pink is very like, you know, the Pantone. Yes. They all come out with their colours and this is very like, but I think it's, a, I think pink's a bit over as well. I'll tell you what I think. 
Um, the green is probably going to travel more and more because it's uh, that kind of Tehran, a dark grey green and Deneem seems to be very popular. But my feeling about it is that the biggest trend and the reason why Farm and Ball are coming out is grey's gone, as we said earlier. But being yourself is probably the most important thing to be in interiors at the moment. The idea that you it's being used to express yourself. So they need to get people shifting off magnolia, shifting off elephant's breath, because it's all about uh, an authentic interior. And, uh, and with that is with colour. Because people sometimes think if I paint everything magnolia, it'll just it leaves it, the walls free for other things, but also it makes it look bigger. But, yeah. but maybe that's not necessarily true um, then. I think the most important thing with colour is the actual amount of light coming into your room. There's a thing, and I, I'll give you a bit of science here, it's very boring, but uh, paint is really a reflection of light. So if even if you paint a perfect sulking room pink or whatever, unless you have the correct light, it's not going to look like that. Yeah. So you have to be very particular about paint. It's not, so if you've got a dark room, you have to think about that first. But and it's an expensive it's a kind ex- of experiment if you're going to bring home Farrow and Ball and put it up and think, well, that's not what it no, looks like. No, you're going to get a little patch test first. Okay. You're going to get a little patch test. You're never going to come home with the Farrow and Tin paint. And also be very careful. Do never be browbeaten by designers or by any, you know, anybody into what you, you know, you be yourself in your room. And that is a huge trend at the moment. So if the colour just grabs you and you love it. Go for it. You'll make something to work around yeah. it, won't and you? And the other big hint that they're talking about now is to express yourself within the laundry room or within the pockets of your house. So if you want a crazy yellow, especially if you have to adapt to somebody who doesn't like yellow, paint it in the inside of your wardrobe. Like, you know, a house is an expressive thing at the end of the day. It's not just a vehicle for Farrow and Ball and to say to the neighbours, this is a lovely downpipe grey. It's like about you. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's art in its own way. Okay. And they do, in, in fairness, they, they are lovely paints. I have one room where I splashed out. <laughs> yeah. My poor painter nearly fell over, but uh, I, I love it. And it, uh, it kind of has that look of a period house. I don't know what it is it's, about. Is it a chalkiness? It's, or? They have very good pigments. They have powdered pigments in their paint. That's for good peas there. But that, that is exactly, they have a deeper colour way, which is why they reflect the colour far better than a cheaper paint. So what you're looking at is depth of pigment and colour and that's what you're paying for. Okay. But don't pay for the colour. You know, you pay, and uh, they also have uh, fewer um, uh, toxins in the makeup of their paints. So, so you don't get that smell. Yes, it's okay. much healthier for children. And that's the big new trend. There's now We're now talking about importing powder paints that you just add with water. There's a huge drive away from um, toxicity in anything. All right. So if you're going to spend 100 quid on a pot of paint, you can go into your sulking room afterwards to get over it. Uh, all right. We'll leave it there for now. I really enjoyed that. Roisin, thank you so much for joining thank us today. Thank you very much, Sinead. It was lovely to be here. The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. Brought to you by EBS. Let our dedication, focus and expertise help you on your mortgage journey. EBS DAC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. This is News Talk. Now we've moved outside the studio uh, and we're going to be talking about the garden. I'm here with resident gardener on the Pat Kenny Show uh, on News Talk, but we borrowed him for our first episode. Pori Corkin, you're very welcome. Thanks to a million, Sinead. The Home Show. It's lovely to be here. Now, set the scene about where we are and why we are here. Well, we've come down to the Phoenix Park, to the Victorian Garden. It's actually called the Kitchen Garden. It's a walled garden. It's about 130 years old at this stage, Sinead. And I suppose the principle in setting up the Victorian Garden was to produce food, the fruit, the vegetables, the herbs, and of course, the cut flowers for the estate. And that tradition has been carried on here by the OPW. It's a beautiful two and a half acre garden, walled in, completely walled in to conserve the heat and to keep the wind out. And the OPW grow beautiful range of fruiting plants, a wide range of herbs, a beautiful herbaceous avenue or border producing fabulous cut flowers. And it's also home of Michael D's honeybees. Well, lucky them because it is an absolutely beautiful garden. It's very ordered. Isn't it? This isn't a place where kids are going to be running around uh, picking bits of flowers. It's um, really set out in a very um, planned manner and I presume that's deliberate. That's it. it. They've kept the Victorian theme 
to the garden. So you've got very structured walks, very structured borders. We're here right beside the strawberry crop and you can see how mm. the lovely neat rows. The, the gardeners are just ahead of us, Paul and Media are just ahead of us. The strawberries were planted last season. They're growing through the Mipex materia, but it's very structured and organised and that would be typical of a Victorian walled garden. And I believe that visitors can come down here and meet the gardeners on occasion. Absolutely. Every, the second Saturday of every month, the gardeners are available to talk to the public about hints and tips of what they should be doing in their garden. We can see them beside us. Right, yeah, Paul there is pruning back the <laughs> strawberries at the moment, preparing the strawberries for the spring, cutting off the old dead growth. So the gardeners are here every second, the second Saturday of every month at 10.30 to talk to the public about what they can do in their garden. Fabulous. I, I can already taste the cream with them. Isn't it lovely? <laughs> They're not but, even up yet. <laughs> so, Sinead, it's an ideal location for people to bring their children down mm. to learn about their five a day, what fruits they can grow in their own gardens, what flowers they can grow in their own gardens, and what they can do to encourage honeybees and butterflies into their own gardens by growing the plants that you see in front of us. And you don't need anything on this scale or anything this big to be able to do that, isn't that right? I mean, just even just leaving a bit of your garden without it being overly tended to absolutely. or being too careful. Wildlife just prefer a bit of mess, don't they? Exactly, absolutely. Things like dandelions, the bees absolutely love them. Many of our garden flowering weeds are actually very beneficial for bees. But also, so many plants can be grown in boxes and containers and window boxes. So, for example, things like salad crops, like your lettuce leaves, your oak leaf lettuce, you can plant a window box full of those. And rather than cutting the lettuce head, you can actually peel it. So you just take oh, off the right, leaves. Okay. So pick as you need the plant. So it's kind of a cut and come. You take a small bit of the leaves off as you need it and allow the plant to regrow again. So in a simple window box, you can produce a beautiful range of salad leaves and salad plants simply sitting on your windowsill. And maybe sneak in a few strawberry plants as well. And how do you feel about those supermarket herbs that you can buy in the plastic packets? Are you better growing from seed yes, or you are, are they okay? Or pop into your local garden centre and take up some Irish grown herb plants because many of the supermarket herbs are forced in greenhouses. They're, they're brought on very, very quickly under perfect conditions in bright lights, in warm temperatures, but really when you bring them home they can often collapse. So you're better off to get plants, herb plants that have been grown in Irish conditions from your local garden centre. We're actually coming up to the herb area here at the Phoenix Park and you can see the lovely rosemary, the lavender, yes. the thyme, all those popular herbs are now available in garden centres ready for planting. So you can sow them from seed, it does take a bit of time from seed. My advice is really go in and get eight or ten plants in your local garden centre and you'll have many of the herbs for many years, like these particular ones here in the Phoenix Park are here for at least ten years and you can see how strong they are. So many of them come back, many of them are perennial, they come back year after year. So there's thyme and, and sage. I can see garlic, garlic and chives, chives which is fabulous. Um, chocolate mint. Chocolate mint, a beautiful yeah. variety Sounds of like mint. the ice cream people have been here already. These uh, are the common thai, uh, chives, you've got rosemary, mm -hmm. you've got fennel in, in the distance. So these are perennial herbs, they're here all winter, and they come back literally year after year. So easy to grow and great for children, particularly if children have any sensory um, uh, situations because the, the herbs are highly scented, they're very tactile. So, you know, if blindness... And they're or, hardy. Absolutely. They're so, hard, <laughs> yeah. they're so hardy and so easy to grow. And, of course, you get a sense of achievement when you grow it yourself. I know from my own garden, though, that there are some herbs and plants that just lose the run of themselves and grow all over the place. What are the ones to keep in well, the uh, tubs? Yeah, mint is probably the most common one that you need to actually plant in a container and keep it confined within a container. For If it gets the free run of your garden, it will tend to take over. But as you can see here, the herbs are planted in blocks. And if you plant them in blocks they're easier to maintain and easier to look after and many of the garden herbs are Mediterranean and they'll suit container growing so you can plant them in window boxes hanging baskets and you don't necessarily have to grow them all together you can mix them with other flowering plants for example some edible flowers like violas which are the flowers of mm -hmm. violas are edible so again, you can have a pretty window box. Pansies and things. Yeah, pansies. They're all the flowers are edible. You can mix some herbs, maybe some strawberries, some of the salad crops. Do a mix container as well. It right. doesn't have to be all of one thing. Okay. Well, we're in spring. Well, we're told we're in spring. <laughs> At least we're heading there. It doesn't feel like it today. It's freezing cold. 
What should people be doing now to get ready for the year ahead, for the gardening year ahead? Thankfully, our winter wasn't as cold this year as no. it was last year. Nor as uh, wet. So, nor as wet. Yeah. And, and maybe the gardens are in slightly better condition, are they? Absolutely. If anything, the gardens are actually, the plants are two weeks ahead of our normal season. The magnolias are in flower, camellias are in full flower, daffodils come into flower before Christmas. So we've actually had an exceptionally mild and, and um, warm winter and early spring. It's really only the last couple of days it's got cold. So the things to, to bear in mind is get back on your lawn, get the lawn trimmed if you haven't got that done. Moss is a problem at the moment, lawn moss. So every lawn has some degree of moss in and it. And what can you do about that? The best treatment I found is a treatment called Zero, which is a liquid lawn treatment. You simply mix it in water, apply it to your lawn, and it kills the moss overnight. Okay. So it's easy to apply and very fast acting. So that's a product called Zero. The next stage then really is to feed your lawn and put on a slow release fertilizer because you want to green the grass without making it grow. Yeah. So if you, now, of course, people like this idea of this bowling green, you know, yeah. absolutely perfect grass and all these lines going up and down. Like, uh, that isn't necessary, but uh, how much work is there involved in maintaining a lawn? Well, the key thing really is regular mowing and then the, the application of the zero to get rid of the moss. Feeding, if you put on something like the Osmo Lawn Feed, that will feed it for three months. So if you apply it now, it's, it's really going to feed it right up till early summer. It's a matter then of, of keeping the grass trimmed and just maintained. And really, if you do that on a regular basis, you'll keep your lawn in tip-top condition. Great. Okay, Porik, well, we've moved to a slightly more sheltered part of the garden here now, and we can watch everybody at work uh, tending these plants for spring. We've actually had quite a lot of listeners sending in questions uh, their gardening queries so maybe you'll take a few of those absolutely Jonathan has been in touch he says I'm not really into gardening but wouldn't mind sprucing up my garden with a few plants and shrubs what would be best to grow <laughs> that I won't kill or don't have to look after okay well let right. me give easy you, peasy maintenance let me here. give you five of the easiest plants to grow and probably five of the most colorful so there's a lovely plant at the moment just coming into flower called Uriops it comes to us from South Africa. It's got bright yellow daisy-like flowers. Really, really spectacular plant. Very simple to grow. It'll grow in a pot or container. You can plant it out in your garden soil. It's a great filler. So it'll grow to about two feet in diameter and in height and flower from now right through to the end of September. Oh, that so that's a plant perfect, called Uriops. Lovely. It'll be available in garden centres at the moment. Another favourite of mine is Pittosporum Tom Thumb. Oh, now hold on. <laughs> well, as the name just suggests. Just wouldn't say Tom Thumb, will that do? Well, it, it'll be a start, certainly, but as the name suggests, Tom Thumb is a short, very compact plant. It's got beautiful purple foliage 12 months of the year. And then in springtime, at this time of year, the new growth is a bright apple green colour. So you get the lovely contrast in colours between the new growth, which is bright green, and the dark purple foliage. Oh, that sounds lovely. It's a lovely plant, Pittosporum Tom Thumb. Once it's planted, it needs no care and it gives you that lovely ball of foliage 12 months of the year and would look very well planted with the Uriops. It's lovely hydrangea, but people love hydrangeas. Oh, it is lovely, isn't it? But there's a lovely short variety called Bobo, which only grows two feet in height, produces beautiful ice cream shaped flowers, like a 99. In oh, the middle fantastic. of summertime. It's a beautiful variety. Hydrangea Bobo, again, you'll get it in your local garden centre. Other varieties like Vanilla Freeze is another beautiful one, which has vanilla means white, freeze means raspberry. So it's got that white and, and raspberry Looking red effect. colour. Beautiful Lovely. plant. It changes colour during the growing season. Lavender is always extremely popular. You need a sunny, bright location with good drainage for lavender. But if you've got those conditions, lavender, again, is an easy plant to grow and brilliant in pots and containers as well. It is. And also, when you cut it and bring it indoors, you have that scent for everywhere. Beautiful scent. And if you lasts for ages. If you have a difficulty in sleeping, slip a little bit of the lavender into the pillow slip and you'll sleep like a baby. Fantastic. So lavender, Uriops, Pittosporum, the hydrangea, bobo or vanilla freeze, they're five really easy to grow garden plants. They're available in garden centres at the moment. But look at you'll get great advice in your local garden centre anyway. Sure. Good. Okay, Jonathan, that's lots of tips for you now. You'll get your green fingers before long. Ellen has been on to us. She said, are there any plants or shrubs that thrive in shade? She has a big tree in her back garden and it never gets sun underneath. The grass doesn't grow and there's a bit of earthy patch in front. Now, of course, this is a problem when you've overgrown trees. I've one myself in my back garden and it's just mulchy and damp and yeah. not very nice. And you're not alone. I have one right out at the edge of my house, a big sycamore tree that overhangs everything. So under that, I have planted a couple of shade-loving plants. So one of my favourites is a plant called Fatsia Spider's Web. And Fatsia Spider's Web holds its foliage 12 months of the year. 
It's got very large leaves. I mean, the, the leaves are probably a foot in diameter, but they've got a speckled color. So they're both green and white, like a, like a spider's web. Beautiful plant. So that's available in your garden center. Does really well in shade. Another nice plant with variegated foliage is a Cuba japonica or spotted laurel. And again, it retains its foliage 12 months of the year, produces nice white flowers, red berries, but speckled leaves. And generally, Sinead, when you're planting plants in a shaded area or under trees, plant them in groups of threes or five. So rather than planting a whole myriad of different plants, if you plant in clusters of threes or fives, those plants amalgamate into one large clump and look more stunning and okay, more attractive. And, and it, they have an opportunity to spread out a bit more together. Yeah, and they'll actually clump together as a kind of an overall large uh, patch of colour rather than too many itty bitty pieces. So Fatsia spider's web, the Cuba japonica, another lovely plant called Virginia and there's one called baby's doll which is lovely pink flowers. Elephant like leaves, rubbery kind of large leaves that, re that it retains 12 months of the year and beautiful pink flowers. But again there's lots of shade loving plants available at this Great. time of and year for so planting. And it's so nice to get a splash of colour where you don't expect it. Exactly, you know, all exactly. Okay. particularly for winter colour. Lauren uh, says she lives in an apartment. We were speaking a little bit about this before with a small south-facing balcony. Any idea for good plants to make a little apartment garden for herself? She doesn't mind if they need a little bit of work on them. Uh, now, of course, this all feeds into this Danish hygge, hygge, hygge. hygge. how are you pronouncing that trend? <laughs> yes, of course. Of minimalism, but beauty and, and things the that use are really, of gravels. really simple. Exactly, yeah, and yeah. texture and, and stone. Hard surface and areas, absolutely. cacti plants. And that's a big trend at the moment, the, the growing of plants like the jade plant, or it's often called the money plant or the friendship plant, because it's seen as a lucky plant. But the jade plant is a really, it's an indoor plant. You only need to water it once a month and you repot it every three years. Gosh, I How think easy even I is could do that? that. <laughs> How easy is that? But it's often given, particularly in Chinese culture, as a friendship plant. If people open a new business or them open a new home or whatever, the, the friendship plant or the jade plant is often given oh, as a gift because it's such an easy plant to grow. On a balcony, on a south-facing balcony, you're getting, going to get full sun. So there's a whole myriad of plants you can grow, particularly in containers. So many of the flowering plants, so things like the, the spring flowering pansies, the polyanthus, the primulas could be grown at this time of year. You could put some of your five a day, so your strawberries, your herbs would absolutely love it. Lavender would tomatoes love it. Tomatoes are great. They're tomatoes very easy to grow, are aren't brilliant. they? Those little uh, cherry tomatoes. Yeah, and there's, there's a couple of really easy varieties. One called red profusion, which actually, once you plant it, all it needs is water to grow. You don't have to pinch it out or stake it. It actually makes a mound of foliage, flower and fruit during the middle of the summer. Or another lovely variety called tumbler, a really Simple oh, to grow. I grew that myself yeah. now the last few years up a kind of a window in my kitchen, which is very tall, Brilliant. and it, it put it went onto the stake perfectly. And yeah. I had I had tomatoes right through to November. That's it. They continue to fruit. So red profusion or tumbler are two excellent, easy to grow varieties. And remember, great for getting kids involved because the child that grows the tomato eats the tomato. Yeah. And you could put actually even some of those in window baskets, can't you? you? Yes, you, you know, can. The hanging baskets. In hanging baskets, yeah. and you can mix other flowers with them. So you can have a strawberry, you can have a tomato together you can have some flowers all in the one container so mix it up but a south facing balcony you've got such a wide range of plants you can grow great Lo lots of tips for lauren then uh, brian has said now he's back out in the garden so decking or paving he has that dilemma which is better what kind of things do you need to take into consideration i suppose it depends on on how you want to live and what you want that space for absolutely but we are seeing a trend towards more hard surface areas so people if anything Sinead, gardens in ireland tend to be too big there's too much lawn and too much maintain areas to maintain. So paving or decking is a great way kind of to, to, to use up the space in the garden, but also to make the space usable, that you're able to go out there and cook during the, during the spring and summer period or use to entertain. And we're seeing a huge interest in covered structures as well to actually cover areas off to make them more weather um, you know Sensitive. that you can yeah that you yeah. can use them all year round so in terms of decking be careful with wooden, wooden decking because it tends to be very slippy mm. particularly in Ireland with the high level of rainfall we get so I tend to prefer hard surface areas even the, the paths that have been walking on here in the OPW in the garden are made up from gravel which is very cheap material, yet it creates great sound in the garden yeah. and it's very easy to and maintain. And you can get lovely colours as beautiful well, colours, can't you? Beautiful colours, beautiful colours. So paving for me or gravel works really well in, in, in gardens. Okay. Um, Bobby says himself and his wife are looking to get their garden completely remodelled. They live in a housing state with a west-facing garden. Well, that's a good start, I'm yeah. sure. There's a small patio area outside the house. 
but the rest of the garden slopes down very steep, uh, steeply and he's wondering whether to create different levels in the garden so I suppose I layers of gardens yeah. or, or is there a better way to work with that? No, that makes perfect sense. So west facing is going to be evening sun predominantly so the patio area if it's west facing would be perfect for sitting out there in the evening time but slopes and banks can be difficult to maintain and particularly as people get older they can be dif difficult to just to get across so it's a great idea to to restructure that and to put it into different levels and layers within the garden with with steps or with small pathways joining up the different levels so certainly i would advise trying to get as much level even if it's stepped down into the garden area because slopes and banks can be quite difficult to plan to um, to maintain sure. but a great bit of interest when you do it yeah. look great and you could leave some of the areas sloped and maybe plant those areas up so if you've got a lawn and a sloped area that can be difficult to mow and difficult to maintain so better to terrace it maybe leave some of the areas sloped and if so plant those with ground covering plants that'll make it very easy to maintain great okay well the sun has just come out here now in the phoenix park in the opw wall garden it's absolutely beautiful there's even a hint of spring in the air patricia says she's got a yellow rose bush in her garden for about 20 years lots of beautiful scented flowers every year but last year it didn't flower uh, and she was worried that uh, one of the larger branches had turned a copper color now okay. that doesn't sound good does it well no no it's not too bad I'd, i would guess this is a variety called arthur bell it's a beautiful floribunda rose which is highly scented lovely yellow variety 20 years the rose is probably coming to its end, to be quite honest. Oh, like yeah. roses, if you get 20 or 25 years from a rose, you're doing really well. Now, some varieties, particularly the more vigorous varieties, can live a longer period. But after 20 years, you've got your money's worth <laughs> from the rose. Okay. I'm thinking it might be a good idea. Time to go shopping for a younger Yeah, model. to put in some from new, new young roses okay. again. The copper, the new copper growth, that's some of the rose varieties, particularly Arthur Bell, produces a reddish copper foliage in juvenile as that kind of young growth mm. as it starts in the springtime so don't be misled by that it's not all new growth is green some of it can start to purplish or reddish color and later turn to green so as if patricia well. wanted to replicate that exact one that she has she, she it's still available oh it's the arthur bell is still a very very good variety it's a beautiful scented variety but there are lots of others like mm. fragrant cloud uh, trumpeter is a beautiful rose one of my favorite roses so and a great time now as we come into march to plant roses great uh, so oliver's been on to us she wants to know what plants work best in pots she wants to put a few on her patio so outdoors now she doesn't say whether she's looking for flowers or ones that would double up as herbs what, yeah. what would you recommend and Sinead, for there's so many plants do well in containers so uh, for on my patio for example i've got some beautiful japanese uh, maples which are just coming into leaf at the moment they absolutely love being potted up camellias are just coming into flower at the moment they produce beautiful big rose-like flowers at this time of year and do very well in pots and containers the uriops that bright yellow plant that i mentioned at the beginning of the program brilliant plot for pots and containers herbs lavender mm -hmm. loves to be put in pots and grown in pots and all the spring flowering plants like the polyanthus the spring flowering pansies the violas they can be potted up into containers now for color from now till the end of of Easter so there's such a wide variety even some of the tomato plants that you mentioned the tumblers the red profusion they're brilliant in pots and containers so there's so many such a variety of plants so you could you really grow. get a huge mix of both you know useful vegetables and and herbs and along with the flowering kind with, with flowering plants you can mix them all up together as well make sure that you get a pot a fairly large pot yes. don't pick small little pots because they tend to be too difficult to maintain you're constantly having to water better to get a large pot and fill it with maybe a choice of different plants but the japanese maples are beautiful and beautiful the pots foliage. themselves are just beautiful outside terracotta now, aren't they? pots glazed pots yeah absolutely mm. okay your garden center i'm sure we'll have have loads of those olive uh, pauline uh, has sent in our final question what's the best time of the year to so grass seed we tried last summer but the hot weather burnt off a lot of the seeds well let's hope we get the hot weather this year but i think you're probably going to say soon springtime no it'll germinate at this time of year it's not so much about the time of year it's down to the temperatures and the weather conditions we get and grass seed germinates at 10 degrees celsius so every day at the moment we're having 10 degrees you'll see the weeds beginning to germinate so grass seed will germinate equally as well. It's more about getting the soil ready, Sinead. You need a couple of fine days to rake the soil, get it nice nice and level, sow your seed, and it should germinate within 10 to 14 days. Okay, we'll leave it there. Now that's work for everybody to get started uh, today. Uh, Pora Corkin from Hawkins Garden Centres, who you can also find on the Pat Kenny Show during the week. Thank you for joining Thanks, us. Thanks, Sinead. The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. Brought to you by EBS.
Let our dedication, focus and expertise help you on your mortgage journey. EBS DAC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. This is News Talk. In this, our first episode, we've been talking about design and interiors and making the most of the space you already have. But we're going to turn now to the more fundamental issue of actually finding a home, whether it's renting or buying. And who is buying and selling? Is it families, investors? This is all very topical, of course, at the moment. And I'm delighted to say we're joined by property consultant Kira Sheehan of Integrity Property. Kira, in terms of the process of buying and selling, it's all a bit terrifying, isn't it? You see, you have to remember this is an emotional transaction. It's the most emotional transaction you'll ever make apart from getting married, right? So people need to understand that when they are selling, Effectively, they're selling the story of their family, of their journey, of their lives so far. And the people who are buying need to remember that that's what they're buying into. So if you can at some point separate yourself from either point selling or buying, it makes the transaction a whole lot easier to manage because it's actually a financial transaction, even though we're heavily invested personally. And we're really invested in this country. We take property so emotionally. And behind every statistic, really, there's a human story and an emotional story, isn't there? There is. Like I have seen a lot over the years. I've seen the happy ones, the sad ones, the crazy ones, <laughs> um, the marriage breakups, you know, I've seen the joy of handing keys to first time buyers. I've seen a couple of girls walk into kitchens and think they're going to buy this house. And they did. You know, it just turned. I just knew that the, the houses were for them. So I have seen it across all aspects. And it, it the funny thing is, it still it comes back to what's in your heart. It does. With everybody. It does. Now, that's when it, you know, when you're buying and selling, it's one thing. But gosh, when it comes to the rental market, it really seems like it's just completely dysfunctional. What's your sense of things now? Uh, Like, is the government finally making a difference here with new legislation and rules? You can have as much legislation as you want. But if you have no stock to um, apply the legislation to, it's irrelevant. Now, the legislation, you know, you can argue either way from tenants or from landlords, and I've seen it from both sides. And there has to be fairness and equity at both ends of the scale. But the residential market for tenants in Ireland is just completely dysfunctional. It's it's an absolute famine of property out there at the moment. Now, of course, one of the reasons we've been told for the lack of supply is the fact that so many buyers of mainly apartments, it has to be said, are still cash buyers, something like 40 percent of the market. How does that skew it and, and make it even more difficult for just regular people who just want somewhere to live? Well, we had a chat about this in the office and I actually rang a couple of other agents. I rang some that are outside Dublin um, and in the commuter belt because we could not make sense of this headline last week. And when we have several properties in one area for sale, you're inclined to see the same footfall. So you'll see the same couples, the same people. And you kind of get to know them. And, you know, my job is to get to know the person in the queue because they could be my next customer. And if I have a good understanding of what they need, then I can, you know, take a little bit of the pain out of it. So we've seen the same people at the same properties over a period of, say, three to five months. And then you see a group of maybe people in suits, a little bit distanced, don't want to engage, just want to see the inside of the property. And they're the people who are investors. But they are the only people that we can pin down as cash buyers. The average 35-year-old couple are not cash buyers. So what you have is you might have um, somebody buying or bidding on behalf of someone else, but then... I'll ring around a couple of other agents and I'll find out they're bidding on five properties. Mm. So Now, of course, it's not all bad because if you have somebody, I, certainly if you're selling, it's great to have a cash buyer because you're not waiting on somebody yes. to get mortgage approval or sell their own property. Uh, and for the institutional investors themselves, and they are buying to rent. So is that really a bad thing? We've seen a couple of developments, particularly around Dublin, where the entire development has been bought over, say, by a real real estate investment trust or a pension fund. Uh, But that means more properties about to come in the rental market. So that's a good thing. It's a good thing if you're in the rental market. But if you're in the person, you're the person who's parked up behind the investor outside on the street and you need a home because you're three months pregnant, then it's not so good. So it's it's you can kind of you can move the chairs the deck chairs on the Titanic, but at the end of the day, they're still on the Titanic. Do you think, though, that the increase in house prices, and, and really they are quite high now, uh, will start putting off these cash buyers? Is, is it really worth no, their while? No, they won't, because the rental yields are well over the 
And as long as you're at that level and an investor can see between five, seven, eight percent, it's going to take a lot to put them off. Yeah. OK, well, look, we put a call out during the week just for some people to send in their okay. concerns. So maybe you'll be able to help them with that. Uh, Jane, I think, uh, is echoing what we've just been talking about. She says, we've been trying to buy our first house for well over a year now. Various bids have fallen short. They even went as far as sale agreed. And then it was taken off the table when further hidden costs emerged after the survey. There's so many obstacles along the way, really. Uh, so she says she feels now it would be better for an estate agent to start working on the buyer's behalf as well as the seller. Uh, and and she's worried about maybe any exploitation of those, uh, you know, who are exposed to what she calls to a largely secret bidding process. Is it secret? Are there are there not rules about the professionalism of, of, of estate agents and how they do their business? Technically, there's no secrets, but technically there's smoke and mirrors. There's smoke and mirrors everywhere in this business, everywhere. So... It's very, very hard for people to judge whether or not they're in a genuine bidding war. But I say to people, you have to trust your gut instinct. If you get a feeling from your agent that every time you ring and you put a bid on, the bit, you get a phone call back within two minutes, it's gone up by five, ten, twenty thousand euro, then the chances are that that agent has underpriced the property and knows the price they want to get to. And they're using your bids to do that. Now, That's not to say that all agents do it. I would have to say, I've been in this business a long time. I did a huge amount of work last summer contacting agents all over the country. And the majority of them were straight up and I could work with them and they were great. But I still have my gut instinct is that it still goes on. So your agent should be able to say to you, there's two other people in the the chain. One's a first time buyer, one's an investor, one's mother lives around the corner, one has kids in school up the road. They should be able to talk to you with familiarity without exposing any GDPR information, any personal information. And they should be confident the person who is bidding has been um, financially passed to bid so that you know that I know they have the means to make the bid. So they're not wasting anyone's time. But you're, you can never really be certain. I mean, this idea of, you know, oh, somebody just put in, upped it by 5,000. Do you want to up your bid a little bit more? Have you any way of knowing if they're actually a bidder there or if they're just jacking um, up the price. Because remember, the, most estate agents, it has to be said, charge a percentage, a, a, you know, a commission on on selling your property or buying your property. So does that not skew the market? It depends on which way you look at it, right? So if I have a property for sale and it's three, say it's on a 320 and the vendor wants 350, okay? The difference for me as an agent between 350 and 355, it's, it doesn't pay me. It doesn't pay my business in the long term to do that. So I wouldn't necessarily let the fee point of view dictate to the factual point of view. I I think the agent is under no obligation, under regulation to show you what's in the bid book. But there are transparencies coming through in technology which will help the situation. Okay, um, and sometimes I know for myself, you can see on these online sites like my home and app, they're actually showing if a house price has gone up or yes. down or I if would, it's been Yeah, there's a really good changed. website, um, a Twitter site, and it's price changes at myhome.ie. And it's really interesting to watch because it's a Twitter feed. And if you scroll down through it, you can see what's gone up, what's come down and what's stayed the same. So that kind of gives you an idea for where you are. Do you think there's a little bit of um, managing expectations around house prices, particularly in Dublin? We've seen uh, some flatlining of prices mm-hmm. in the more desirable postcodes. Uh, and, and, you know, people maybe have expectations about... Oh, they totally do. ...what their house They think worth. I walk in with a magic wand and a crystal ball. <laughs> but, like, I try and be realistic with them and say, you know, you've had three estate agents in and they've all told you the magic numbers. I'm not going to tell you the magic number. I'm going to tell you the number I think you're going to get in a reasonable time frame so that you can move on. But people think that because they have a postcode that it's a blank check and it's not because at the end of the day the market will decide. Not the estate agent. They can guide you but the market will decide. Now speaking of the guidance when you're selling a house of course you get this letter giving you the the minimum value isn't that right of, of what you can expect to get. Yes. Uh, how kind of realistic is that to be? Do, do you give a range of prices? Is this, Are you locked into it in any way? I don't think you're locked into it and I think a lot of it is subjective. I'd rather give someone an honest opinion than give it to them in writing and say you know um, Mrs O'Reilly up the road got 375 for hers and she didn't even have new windows you've got an extension your conveyancing is right everything's been approved the chances are you will achieve more than that whereas but, if you stick to the number that's on the page really 
is it really going to make any difference? Is it going to make your journey on all of this any better? Okay, we've had Barry on as well. Barry says he's been renting an apartment for over two years. They've just had their first baby. Congratulations, Barry. The landlord has now told us she needs the house the apartment back for her son uh, who's moving back to Ireland. He wants to know what his options are. Now, the landlord is allowed to do this. I mean, under the new regulations, mm-hmm. there's very strict criteria about which you can kind of evict somebody. But this is one of them, isn't it? This sounds like a clean cut case. Um, Barry is entitled to 56 days notice. Um, the landlord must issue the notice um, in writing, um, in normal postage, because if it's issued under registered post it can be deemed not delivered um, and realistically if I had a tenant with a young child I would give them as much notice as possible And that notice period that changes depending on how long you've yes. been in situ doesn't yeah, it? Yeah it does like I have the list here so Barry would be entitled to 56 days um, It's not much is it? Not in this market it's not and what's happened is a lot of tenants just go I'm not moving take me to court and they enforce landlords to take them to court but they buy themselves three or four months Okay, but I mean, you couldn't really recommend. That's a very stressful way to. It is to a very stressful out. way, but it's also very stressful moving out with a young child and nowhere to go. Mm. So, you know, I'm sure Barry sounds like he's a good guy and he's been straight up about it, but technically he has 56 days. Okay, Barry gets started now. I, I think is probably the answer to that. Uh, Liam, now Liam's coming from the other side of the coin. Liam says, I'm an accidental landlord with an apartment in North Dublin. I'm thinking of letting it under the HAP scheme. What are the benefits and drawbacks? Now, we saw in the headlines recently that there are millions and millions being spent by the government on the HAP scheme, which is supposed to be a temporary measure. Uh, for landlords, what's the upside of HAP? Is it the guarantee of the tenant? It's the guarantee of the payment of the rent if the tenant is the right tenant for that property. So... If the council has vetted the tenant, the tenant has a good reputation, could possibly be a working tenant, not necessarily someone who is not employed, then the chances are it will work. And when it works with the right tenant, it is a really effective process. But even though it's a short-term measure, it's designed for people with a long-term housing need. So within that, you are going to have potholes in the road. So if for a landlord, the biggest showstopper for a landlord that we have come across is... The landlord must produce a tax clearance certificate within five to eight months of the tenancy being issued. If the landlord cannot supply a tax clearance cert, they may have their payment suspended and they don't know when it's going to be reapplied. But that aside, the vetting is done, you know, by the local authority um, and... You're kind of reliant then on their kind of mixed need to actually house people and, and, and find landlords who they match up to. It seems to me, though, that because they pay the rent directly to the landlord, that that's a good thing. That That's something that the landlord then can rely on every single month to get in the door. Again, Sinead, if it's the right tenant, because the tenant pays a portion of the rent to the council and the council pays the full amount to the landlord. If you have a tenant who's patchy in their payments and they don't pay the council, the council withholds the full amount from the landlord. OK, so the, the onus then mm. is on the landlord to manage that. And what about top-up payments? Are they legal... Um, when you apply for HAP, you come in contact with a HAP officer and that HAP officer has a certain amount of leeway uh, regarding how much you may or may not have. It could be up to 20%, so it's kind of dependent on your situation and the officer and the region you're in. Okay, we'll turn now to Deirdre. Deirdre bought an apartment 12 years ago, uh, but she has to live somewhere else due to work. It's been in negative equity, but she's managed to make it work as an Airbnb for a few years. Her residence association have now banned short term lets and she's wondering, is this uh, is this allowed? Well, it's going to be banned anyway, isn't it, Kira? Well, it might be banned, but if you read the journal, you'll see that Dublin City Council don't have the team or the resources to enforce it. So, yes, it's due to be banned in June. The second issue is the legal description she has of the management company and exactly what rules do they have and are they actually allowed to do that but, uh, under their own agreement? But it is really irritating for neighbours, isn't it, to be it in an apartment be. complex and you have people coming and going yeah. at all hours of the day and night. Yeah. It, you know, that would drive people nuts as well, wouldn't it? Yes, undoubtedly it would. But again, the government has put so much regulation in for landlords that they've driven them down the Airbnb route. You can make three times the money 
from Airbnb that you can make from a standard lease. And I checked it out last summer and I checked it out again the other day. In Bray, you can make three times the rent. But not for much longer because this is all being curtailed now. Uh, In line with other European cities, it has to be said, Berlin, you know, they're cutting either the number of days per year you can let on Airbnb. It's not just Airbnb, short-term letting sites, but also the amount that you can earn. So is that fair or not fair as far as you're Um, concerned? I think it's reasonable, but I don't think it's enforceable. All right. Well, Deirdre, you're probably not going to have any choice there with your apartment, unfortunately, for the time being. Now, Lisa uh, finally is looking to sell and buy a new house. I know how you feel there, Lisa, at the moment. Is it better to do it all at once or rent in the meantime? And what are her options for temporary renting? Now, this affects a lot of people here. It's a bit chicken and egg. Mm. She may not be left with a whole lot of choice here. She might not be left with a whole lot of choice. The first thing I would do is get an idea of the conveyancing. I would have the property surveyed and I would speak to a solicitor about the length of time. Is there going to be complications in the conveyancing, you know, that you can uncover now that might give you an idea of your time frame? So if you go sale agreed and then you have 90 days of conveyancing, it could run into 120 if there's complications. So that's the first thing you need to figure out your timeline. The second thing you need to look at is the short term rental market. So a lot of the short term rentals can just be room only. So depends on what her family situation are. Personally, I would not leave the property until I had another property to go to. I wouldn't rely on the short term rental market. No, because I mean, whatever about trying to find a home in the market at all at the moment, trying yeah. to find one for two or three or some unspecified time is going to be much harder, isn't it? And a hell of a lot more expensive. Mm. OK, it's a problem, Lisa, that's going to face lots and lots of people out there. And maybe some people, though, might feel you're better off. Look, I'll sell up. I'll have the money in the bank and then maybe I can be a cash buyer on the next one. That would be the ideal situation. But you have to find somewhere to live in the meantime. Yeah, it is tough. It is difficult. No doubt about it. OK, well, plenty of good advice there. Kira Sheehan from Integrity Property. Thank you very much for joining thank us. Thank you, Sinead. Well, that's it for the first episode of the Home Show podcast. Now, we'll be up on iTunes and other podcast players shortly. But for now, you can find us on Newstalk.com. My thanks to all my guests and I'll talk with you again soon. The Home Show on News Talk. Brought to you by EBS. Let our dedication, focus, and expertise help you on your mortgage journey. EBS DAC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.